on dispensers of pets, poking out at the cons, renaissance fests, watch anime chicks with inflatable breasts. You might be a trekkie, <laughs> sit back and watch as the uber geek goes and kicks it up. Listen up, fanboy, it's the Fanboy Planet Podcast Special Edition. Yes, after episode 200, we took a week off. And we're taking another week off. But to make it up to you, we're including this special interview by Editor-in-Chief Derek McCaw of James Kekalius, author of The Amazing Story of Quantum Mechanics and The Physics of Superheroes. Yeah, that sounds like something there might be a test on later, but you never know. There might be a test. Enjoy. Uh, not with me. We got a lot oh. of fanboys. <laughs> none, none of us did a trademark check about a decade ago when, when the web exploded. You know, so yeah. there's an I fanboy, there's a fanboy radio, and we are the planet. Uh, oh, okay. Which seemed logical at the time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so you can understand. We're all fanboys no matter what our uh, number Yes, absolutely. So uh, let's just start off with this. Well, you know, what inspired you to write about quantum mechanics for the average person? Um, excellent question. Um, basically, it was a realization, an appreciation that we have in physics and talking to family and neighbors that uh, people felt that quantum mechanics was divorced from their everyday life, that it was this esoteric mumbo-jumbo that worked at the Large Hadron Collider out at CERN in Geneva, Switzerland, or perhaps at Fermilab. But uh, there was no real relevance uh, to people's lives. And yet, working in this day-to-day, I I knew that all of the technology that surrounds us is made possible by the discoveries back in the 1920s by a handful of scientists of how atoms behave and how they interact with light. And so I thought it was like important to give an appreciation of that because it is part of our cultural heritage. And, and moreover, it's an interesting um, mo- moral tale. I mean, it, it, well, the mor- moral of the story is, sorry about stammering like that. No, it's all right. Um, the gravity on Fanboy Planet is a little bit different from my home planet here sure. in Geek World. But, um, we'll open a trade agreement. Go ahead. <laughs> the, um, namely, that the people who made our lifestyles possible were not trying to make our lifestyles possible. They were scientists they were trying to understand how atoms behaved. There was a set of experiments that could not be understood at the time that seemed to indicate that a new set of rules had to be introduced to explain how um, atoms interacted with themselves, how they interacted with light. Those new set of rules eventually developed into a branch of, of physics called quantum mechanics with the understanding of quantum mechanics and the quantum nature of atoms. You can develop a better appreciation of solid state physics. And with solid-state physics, you get semiconductors, you get the transistor, you get the laser, you get iPods, cell phones, laptop computers, DVDs, magnetic resonance imaging, television remote controls, pretty much everything without which life is not worth living. And uh, none of this is possible without quantum mechanics. The guys who developed quantum mechanics, and they were for the most part, with a few exceptions, men, um, were not trying to make iPods. You know, if you 
went to Schrodinger and said, nice equation, Irwin. What's it good for? You know, he's not going to say, well, if you want to store music in a compact digital format. <laughs> right, they couldn't envision this. Exactly, exactly. And yet, it, and so it is in what we, the, the phrase that's used a lot nowadays in science is that it truly was curiosity-based research. It was not research that we're, I mean, nowadays, you know, you write a grant proposal and you have to explain what might be the, the impact of your work. You know, if you're successful, you know, what could this lead to? What could this enable? Um, at the time, they were just trying to be successful. That was going to be the impact enough. Uh, and yet, it had a tremendous impact. We are living in really an amazing age that... Um, uh, the dean of sciences at MIT once said to me, uh, uh, one of his colleagues had pointed out that at no other point in history have so many people been so wealthy thanks to, in, thanks to education that we've always had very rich people in the world, but they typically had a lot of stuff, whether it was land or gold or slaves or what have you. They had a lot of resources. And now we have people who are very smart, basically just through their own efforts and intellectual development and through their education and whether it was a formal education in, in school or that they or they self-taught themselves uh, and so that's that's also an amazing thing that that's part of our heritage right now it's an interesting social change yeah it, it, it really is and so it's part of that that inspired me to to write the book there are a lot of books about quantum mechanics but I noticed that there seemed to be a shortage of books that really explain what quantum mechanics was good for, and that it's not just this you know, esoteric little subfield, that there are really some practical applications. And while some, some aspects of quantum mechanics are certainly confusing, as I say in the book, one of the most amazing things about quantum mechanics is that you can use it correctly and productively even if you're confused by it. <laughs> Which, as all physicists, at some level, we have hallway arguments all the time about various interpretations of certain experiments and what's going on. But we can all agree that if we do certain experiments and we turn the crank in our quantum theory, what the prediction should be and how to compare them to the experiments and the, the agreement is excellent. And so the, the issues about, you know, the Schrodinger cat type stuff, which is a lot of fun and is very philosophical, um... At, on the day-to-day -day level, doesn't really enter into what what most of us do. Most of us use quantum mechanics, and we don't really worry about. It. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, and so it kind of brings up a question for you. Okay, if if you guys, some of you, some don't understand all of it, can you make a pledge in the subtitle that's going to be math math free in your right. exploration of this? Now, what was the biggest challenge challenge in trying to extract the math to make this accessible to the common person? Right. Well, a lot. A big thing is to realize what do you what do you want to accomplish, and um, I don't want it's it's not a textbook, and I'm not looking for people to be able to actually you know you know solve Schrodinger's equation <laughs> in in ver a variety of situations by the end of the book. What I would like them to get an appreciation for is that there are several there are just really a handful of ideas that seem very strange on the surface that one has to accept. And, and then I, I discuss a little bit about some of the reasons, the experimental justification for these ideas. And then I show 
how these ideas then get, have been employed to lead to things like a light-emitting diode or a transistor. Um, once you understand how a transistor works, it's not that hard to explain how a junk drive uh, or a USB drive works. Mm -hmm. um, once you understand um, uh, the magnetic nature that all electrons have, you can explain how you might store or read information stored on a hard drive. Or you can explain how you might um, uh, use this magnetic, the, cha the, the fact that the, the energy levels of the electrons in an atom will vary if you put them in a magnetic field, and how you could use this to probe uh, what atoms are where inside a person's body in magnetic resonance imaging. So to give an appreciation of the basic ideas, um, there's certain simple analogies that for solid-state physics that one can employ that um, then enable you to explain what is the real difference between a compact disc or a DVD or a Blu-ray disc. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, you, you snuck Dr. Manhattan in. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 it's my Watchman cred. I yeah. know, I know. And so I want to talk about that. I mean, you know, we're sure. a fanboy planet. We'll, 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 give, we'll give your geek creds up. But, you know, that's what we need to do. Is, so you serve as a technical advisor. You, you snuck Dr. Manhattan into the book. And uh, you were an advisor on the film Watchman, and you've obviously read it probably you know, 20, 30, 50 times. Did uh, working on the film give you any new insights into the graphic novel, the new appreciation? Um, you know, it kind of did. I never really... It, it's actually... There's, there's an interesting uh, story uh, there. I never really thought too much when I first read the graphic novel the first 20 times. <laughs> why Dr. Manhattan was blue. You know, I just accepted it, that it was a signifier for the fact that John Osterman, once he had his intrinsic field removed and reassembled himself and became the superpower Dr. Manhattan, that, you know, he's, he's a blue, glowing guy. Um, so I, I just kind of accepted that. But then, you know, people were asking me as part of, uh, for the movie, well, why might, why would he be blue? Why blue? And um, <laughs> and so I came up with this physical reason that involves something called Cherenkov radiation. But basically, uh, the same reason if you ever look at a nuclear reactor pile at the bottom of a, of a swimming pool, you might see a blue glow of light surrounding the atomic pile. And that blue light is coming about from the fact that it, the pile, as part of a byproduct of the nuclear reactors reactions, is emitting very high-speed electrons. And those electrons, as they move through the water, basically create, in essence, electromagnetic sonic booms. Um, and those sonic booms are uh, manifest themselves as light in the blue, ultraviolet portion of the spectrum. So that blue light, that blue glow uh, of a reactor pile at the bottom of a swimming pool is a sign of Cherenkov radiation, um, and that presumably Dr. Manhattan might be leaking off this Cherenkov radiation himself. And, and actually, you could use that radiation as a signature of Dr. Manhattan's presence. So if you ever wanted to frame him for giving cancer to his, you know, ex-girlfriend, right. friends, right, this might be, a, you know, a, a totally kosher, you know, legitimate way of doing it. You know, physically correct. This is completely making me rethink all I know about Hindu mysticism, too. 
Okay. Well, because supposedly Almore was very influenced by that, and you've got a scientific reason for why Dr. Manhattan would be blue when he's an analog to a god. Right. Well, the interesting finale to this was that after the movie came out, I was on um, the NPR radio show, Science Friday, and also on the show uh, from a studio in London was Dave Gibbons, the oh. artist yeah. of Watchmen. And so this came up, and I described my Tarikoff radiation, and Dave Gibbons said, wow, I wish we had thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, it was like blue was was a process of elimination that you know. Well, if he was red, he looked like he was on fire, and and yellow or pink wouldn't work. The story is larger than everyone involved. Clearly. And, and, and then and green would make him look like either Brainiac or the Hulk, and so uh, they went with blue. And and even the connection. I thought, well, maybe you know, he he knows about the fact that the reactor piles at the bottom of swimming pools look blue. No, it was just like a random thing. So as I say in the book, just because it was it was chosen completely, you know, randomly, doesn't mean that we can't obsess about it. That's <laughs> right. That's right. And so, That's what makes us geeks. That's what I'm gaining an appreciation reading about you and reading your work. Um, you're my kind of obsessor, um, but far more brilliant than I will ever hope to be. But, um, you know, so occasionally, you know, you, your work and your test questions have influenced comics continuity. You proved how Gwen Stacy died. So, uh, what, <laughs> what character is around now, uh, is there future or past, would you like to change next or influence or prove? You know, some of the things that I see showing up um, in The Flash, uh, uh, you know, I think there was a period there where I think Jeff Johns, and actually I, I, I once uh, saw him very briefly at San Diego Comic-Con, and... Um, he, you know, indicated that he had my book, <laughs> my book, and there were some things that I mentioned about how um, uh, every time the Flash starts or stops running, he should be creating these large divots in the ground <laughs> because of the enormous accelerations and forces he'd have to exert. And I said, fortunately for the Central City Department of Roads and Transportation, this isn't shown too often. And I think in Jeff Johns, like, last issue at one point of the Flash, when he, w he had was completing a, a, a run. Right. Uh, uh, there was like a pinup page and the Flash is running and in the background there's some people filling in a pothole. <laughs> and I always, I've never had the chance to actually ask him directly. <laughs> uh, but he has, uh, Jeff Johns actually definitely had, had, had looked into this. He had a lot of stuff that was right um, about the Flash. You know, when you run, you know, when you, when you walk across a shag carpet, you sometimes pick up a static charge, you know, uh, from the friction between your, your uh, shoes and the carpeting, and you touch a doorknob and you get a shock. Um, but every time you walk, even if it's not across the shared carpeting, there's this friction. You, you only are able to walk due to friction, mm -hmm. and that's rubbing of atoms in the shoe against the atoms in, in the ground. And sometimes you can get a significant charge buildup, even if it's not across shag carpet. Um, you know, a lot of times you get out of your automobile in the parking lot, and you go to close the door, and you give yourself a shock because the tires rubbing against the concrete of the road have picked up some charge that's been transferred to the frame of the car. Um, so uh, the flash should be always electrically charged. 
in this way. And in fact, in one of Jeff Johns' comics, I believe it was Jeff Johns who wrote this, um, someone, someone patted the, the flash on the back and said, hey, check it out, his suit is covered in static electricity. <laughs> um, but moving electric uh, charges is another way of saying an electric current, create magnetic fields. And so this is something that the Flash should be able to do, um, charge himself up, maybe by like rubbing his feet back and forth across some surface at super speed, and then running very fast, he should be able to drag every piece of metal not nailed down, or even if some metal that is nailed down <laughs> behind him. And so, so he could potentially use this... Um, you know, I'm just tossing this out there the next time you come up across, like, say, Gorilla Grodd or something. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. So, uh, yeah, you're obviously a, a deep a deep fanboy. So, what comics <laughs> are you reading now that you'd recommend to, like, the, stu the students in your course? Do you spend a day and say, this is who you should be reading? Oh, wow. That's a good question. Um, you know, Mark Wade does uh, great stuff, and he pays close attention, you know, to the science, of course, still telling, you know, a great story. Um, uh, he, in fact, <laughs> I've now included this in my uh, Physics of Superheroes presentations. Um, for the longest time, whenever uh, Spider-Man fought Electro, he would make take efforts to make sure that he was deliberately grounded. <laughs> so that way, all of the current would pass through his body, <laughs> which doesn't really make any sense to just kind of show that Stanley didn't have a really firm grasp of this. Right. Um, and Mark Wade, in the last time that Spider-Man faced off against Electro, uh, would have been killed, except that he deliberately wasn't grounded and was jumping up in the air at the time that the lightning bolt hit. And so um, Mark Wade does a great job, Gail Simone, um... Uh, let's see, Roger Stern I've always liked, and he's always tried to be, you know, uh, play fair. There's a lot of really good people. Warren Ellis, though sometimes he, did, he gets a little bit too uh, specific, like, you know, trying to figure out how Reed Richards' digestive system would work and stuff. It's a little disturbing, <laughs> like, actually, some of that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's like, yeah, I don't really care. I'm willing to get the suspension of disbelief. <laughs> that, that's just gross, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Right, I think that was exactly Warren's point. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I think for those listening, that was in Ultimate Fantastic Four, wasn't it? That was. Yes, that's correct. Yes, that's okay. correct. Yeah. Got to make these references for those who picked this up. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, I want to say, you know, Grant Morrison claims or gives his motivation for writing superheroes as it's to serve as a guide in a post-human world. And would you agree that we've kind of set this up, because you've just written about quantum mechanics, we're heading towards this. Are we heading towards kind of that concept of a post-human world? What developments do you see that make you think, wow, I mean, this is right out of a comic book? I wouldn't say post-human. I mean, there's. I, I was asked recently about this notion of the singularity, I don't know if that's what you're alluding to. Um, this notion that at some point we're going to, the computers are going to become so intelligent and so powerful that we'll be able to download our intelligence into them and oh, achieve, that. Yeah, that's achieve that. immortality. My problem with that is that before we were able to do that, we first have to understand how the brain works before we can download our brains and memories into uh, a hard drive. And so, um, and that's a long ways off. Yeah, I think what Morris is talking about is that we, we're essentially to the point we're almost about to give ourselves superpowers. Well, you know, to some extent we are. The main limitation is the same one that's been around for about 100 years now, 
which is why we don't have jetpacks and flying cars, namely energy, energy supply. For a lot of this, we do have, I mean, we could build an Iron Man suit pretty much right now. Um, there are exoskeletons that have strength enhancement. There are jetpacks that could enable someone to fly. The problem is that it takes an, a tremendous amount of energy to run these things. And um, at the end of the day, I mean, you could take a jetpack to work, provided you lived only a couple of blocks from your job. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we have jetpacks. It seems but inefficient. It, 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 yes. I mean, you you would you you use up more energy in a flying car getting the car up off the ground than you do then going from point A to point B so that your you know fuel efficiency and mileage is is negligible which kind of defeats the whole purpose of having a car and so um and and that's limited basically because we're stuck with chemistry and atoms you know and molecules interact in these chemical reactions, they sometimes can release energy, and we can employ that energy in a variety of ways um, to drive motors and engines and, and what have you. But at the end of the day, there's only like you know so many different novel ways to combine the atoms and molecules. And engineers and chemists are unbelievably clever in finding new and improved ways to do this. But at the end of the day, you might be able to make something 10 or even 100 times more efficient you know, or more, more powerful, have more energy content, but it's doubtful that you'll be able to do it a million or a billion times. Um, and so unless you want to have an unlicensed nuclear power pack on your back, um, in which case you're one of the Ghostbusters, <laughs> unless you want to do that, and most people wouldn't, um, it's, it's going to be difficult for some of those things to happen. Um, for the for the superpowers themselves, I see the real benefit of the comic books is really even in just the human world. Um, seeing the, because on some level we already all have superpowers. We all have gifts and talents and abilities, and how we choose to employ them. And do we help others? Do we use them selfishly? Even if you use to help others, you know, when are you ever off duty, you know, and have some, some time for yourself? These are all things that we struggle with every day. And superheroes actually are a perfect venue to explore some of these issues. I, I, I've, I've said in the past that I think Superman's greatest power is his super responsibility, that he has all these other uh, talents and abilities, and he never uses them for selfish purposes. He never, you know, uh, snaps, and he's never a jerk. And so um, that's the real inspiration. Um, to my mind, the Flash is the guy who just is a good man, who there never were enough hours in the day. And now suddenly there's enough hours in the day. <laughs> and these are and these are these can be fun. They're they're also fun because they're they're for my for me at least, especially growing up um, in the '60s and reading these comics in the Silver Age, they were almost like a perfect training ground to become a research scientist. Uh, they stressed the importance of knowing the laws of nature. You know, flash fact. The escape velocity is seven miles per second. Um, 
they stressed creative problem solving. You're in a death trap, the walls are closing in, the water's rising up, they've taken away your utility belt. How do you get out without cheating? You know, how do you, how do you find a, a novel, clever way uh, to save the day? And they gave us invaluable tips on fashion. So, <laughs> so it, um, you should see some of our science conferences. I think uh, everybody's been influenced by the Dick Dillon sideburns, haven't they? That's all yeah. Yes, exactly, and the turtlenecks, yeah. I, I've discovered, I realized that when I think I look cool, I need to get a haircut. Yes, absolutely. There's a picture of, that my wife has. She says, every now and then when I'm thinking of, like, growing the goatee back again, she, she brings that out. She says, remember you told me to show you this every time you brought that up? Well, there you go. All right. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, Jim. And, oh, it's uh, been a, it's been a pleasure. Enjoy the book, and the book is the amazing story of quantum mechanics. Available in stores now, right? Yes, it is. Okay. Well, then uh, we'll look forward to uh, your next work, and hopefully talking to you again in the future. Anytime. It's been a pleasure. Thank you Thanks. very much. Bye. Don't tell me, don't tell me. Oh, no, 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 no. Damn it, damn it, damn it. And thanks once again to the great Luke Ski for use of his music in this podcast. Visit Luke Ski at www.lukeski.com.